KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have you with us on a a day of some significance here in Georgia. No matter which side you come down on on the uh, issue of abortion in Georgia, this morning, Governor Kemp signed into law HB 481, the measure which essentially all but outlaws abortion in Georgia. He had a big crowd gathered around with him in the uh, in his office. A number of people spoke uh, in favor of the bill and talked about how important it was that this got done. A few hours later, Democrats in the House held a news conference in which they uh, criticized the measure and said they're going to do everything they can to defeat legislators who voted in favor of the bill. We're going to talk about all that, play you some sound from various people on both sides of the issue on Political Rewind today. Uh, And then we're going to talk immigration. So we've got a lot on our agenda today. Uh, Before we start, let me just remind everybody, June 3rd, Monday night, June 3rd, Cartersville, Georgia, come up and join us at... uh, In Cartersville, well, we're going to be recording Rewind in front of a live audience. It's always fun when we do that. So if you'd like to be with us, why don't you just go to politicalrewind.org and click on the link. It'll take you to a place where you can register for a free ticket. Tickets usually go pretty quickly for these things, so we encourage you to do it right now, and we'll see you all in Cartersville on June 3rd. All right, let's get right to our conversation today. We've got great panel lined up to talk about the issues on our agenda today. Uh, Mark Roundtree, president of Landmark Communications, is with us. Mark, I think it's safe to say you are one of the leading Republican consultants when it comes to Georgia races. You also do polling that is independent of your partisan leanings. You've polled for organizations like WSB-TV and and others. So you've got both of those things going, one a more nonpartisan effort and the other your work with candidates. And you're signing up candidates left and right for 2020. You told me so far. Yeah, over yeah. the last few weeks, there has really been a, a lot of attention, I think, given to uh, running for office and the rest. And um, I think the ending of the legislative session, combined with a lot of the things that are going on politically, are just pulling people out to start running for office. We've been doing this for 28 years now. Yeah. So uh, I should have a little buzzer here, or for you. And if we happen to mention somebody you're representing in the 2020 cycle, <laughs> you should, you know, press the buzzer so everybody knows you have a conflict. <laughs> I will always do that. That's I know you will. 100% of the time I do that. Uh, Darshan Kendricks, Representative Darshan Kendricks is back with us again today. A Democrat who represents East Cab and a piece of uh, South Gwinnett County, right? Well, actually, the majority of my district is in Gwinnett County. Oh, I thought more of it was in DeKalb. No, it's just I grew up in DeKalb, and so <sighs> I and I live in DeKalb. But about sixty percent of my district is in Gwinnett. You know, the last time you were here, uh, when we introduced you, I realized I failed to mention something that is so interesting about your career in politics. How old were you, Darshan, when you were first elected to the legislature in? 2011? Yes. So I was elected, yeah, in, in 2010, sworn in 2011. Yeah. I was the ripe old age of 27. 27? Uh, years have just made my hair grayer and <laughs> grayer. Oh, your hair is not gray. We can all see you. And those who are watching on Facebook Live, which they can do by going to GPB News' Facebook page, um, I, I don't, were you the youngest at that point, or was anybody younger I was the than second you? youngest um, in the legislature, so uh, a friend of mine, Representative Yasmin Neal, she was 25, I was 27. Oh, you were already uh, a, a senior statesman. Right, so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I've, I've, I can't hold on to that title any longer. We just get younger and younger um, members of the legislature, which is a good thing. Well, we're glad to have you back Thank with you. us for the conversation today. Uh, and we welcome to the Political Rewind Studios a first-time uh, panelist. William Boone, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. You like to be called Boone, right? Yeah, for folks who really know me. Oh, so what should <laughs> I apologize? No, no, what I'm should kidding. we call you? Boone is fine. Okay, well, I just, you know, I, we're a casual show here, but I right. also want to be respectful. 
No problem. Boom, be fine. You've been teaching at, at Clark or Clark AU for decades. Yeah, about about 30 plus years now. Wow. So you've really, you you know, in a way you're kind of like, uh, certainly like I am, and Mark's been around for a long, long time. Well, I guess I guess some of us have been here, the young Darshan Kendricks. No, <laughs> no she's only 27 yeah, years. We've all watched the landscape of political uh, Georgia change dramatically over the decades, haven't we? Yeah, we really have. because We've seen it gone from straight Democrat to Republican and now turning purple. You've gone all that way. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. For and that. we welcome back to the Political Rewind microphones, Charles Cook, one of the preeminent immigration attorneys in the Southeast. Chuck, we always love having you here for the show. It's always great to be with you, Bill. Um, we've got a lot to talk about on the immigration front, of we course, do. and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But we really do need to start with um, the bill signing this morning in Governor Kemp's office. Uh, there was no question that he was going to sign this legislation. Um, let's do we do we yeah. Let's listen to first Governor Kemp and what he had to say about uh, the, this bill. As you all know, Georgia is a state that values life. We protect the innocent. We champion the vulnerable. We stand up and speak for those who are unable to speak for themselves. The LIFE Act is very simple, but also very powerful. A declaration that all life has value, that all life matters, and that all life is worthy of protection. I understand, like the others have said, that some oppose this legislation. I realize that some may challenge it in the court of law. But our job is to do what is right, not what is easy. That's uh, Governor Kemp talking about the bill. We're going to listen to a little sound and then turn it over to the panel. Renee Unterman was at the uh, signing ceremony today. She carried the bill, of course, in the state Senate. Here's what uh, she got very emotional. Uh, Her voice is low, but I think you'll be able to hear what she had to say. But this is an issue that Unterman has cared deeply about for a long time, as she expressed in the governor's office this morning. I have spent a lifetime on a journey as a former nurse and a former social worker in the business of saving lives. I've spent that whole time as a legislator waiting to get to today. It is very, very emotional. I would like to thank the birth mothers that gave me my children, Zach and Rachel Unterman, for having the courage to do something that very few people can do. Renee Unterman in the governor's office this morning. Now, just a short time ago, uh, Democratic, I think mostly women in the House, right, uh, uh, Darshan? Correct. Held a news conference in which they talked about their feelings about this measure. Uh, Renita Shannon uh, said this. Governor Kemp had the chance to do the right thing today. And instead, he could have vetoed this bill, but instead he failed. He not only failed the women of Georgia, he failed every single taxpayer who will have to pay to defend this draconian law in court. So in the words of many older black women who who used to say, the supporters of this bill have written a political check that their behinds cannot cash. You cannot afford to mess with women's health care. We'll see you at the polls. Renita Shannon. All right. So let's uh, uh, talk about all of this right now. Um, um, William Boone, the measure is set to go into effect on January 1st. Actually, before we talk, we'll play one more soundbite. This bill, you know, the governor has some latitude in determining whether a measure will go into effect at the start of the fiscal year. So July 1st, 2021 fiscal year, could have gone into effect. I think he has that latitude. This bill would go into effect January 1st, which is why when Andrea Young, the head of ACLU Georgia, uh, uh, issued a statement, uh, she talked about the fact they're not going to be filing suit right away. Let's listen to her. We believe that ultimately the very careful, very well-reasoned Supreme Court standard in Roe v. Wade will be upheld. Our goal is, you know, sometime this summer, um, to uh, to file the legal challenge again. The the bill goes into effect in January uh, because it does have so many disparate elements um, that are that 
have never been put together and and we also have to look at how that interacts with the current law in Georgia. So William Boone, the what Andrea Young is saying is it's not just the abortion uh, portion of this that she believes ACLU will file suit, try to stay the ex- the execution of this law, the, the uh, st- starting date for this law. It's also what we call the personhood uh, sections of the law, which essentially establish that at, at the detection of a fetal heartbeat, presumably, uh, that fetus really has all the rights of a human being. Yeah, that, that's really unique in a way. Because I think that's one of the arguments, in fact, I know it's one of the arguments that uh, was made in Roe v. Wade in terms of uh, saying that at the first heartbeat or the first sign of life that you could be as a person. But that carries a great bit of ramifications in terms of uh, criminalization. It carries ramifications in terms of population counts. It's interesting. And uh, it also means that doctors who may find a necessity to, uh, to abort for medical reasons, may find themselves in jeopardy. And the same thing with a woman. So we do have some problems here in terms of that. But on the constitutional basis, it also challenges the whole question about what does the 14th Amendment really cover and who is covered by that. And certainly there are those who would argue that, indeed, it meant people who were outside of the fetus, outside of the womb. Uh, by the way, thank you for that. Uh, Cody Hall, the governor's press secretary, uh, listening to the show, and he says, and I'm glad he corrected us, that the implementation date is in the statute that the governor signed. It is not at the governor's discretion. So I apologize for giving you incorrect information. Uh, Mark Roundtree, um, I, we're going to talk about the politics of this bill in a couple of minutes, but but before we get to that, right. tell me from your many years of watching Georgia politics, where does the signing of this bill stand as one of the major uh, moments in Georgia history? You would have to look back to Roy Barnes changing the state flag for something this big. Um, this was also sort of unexpected, just like when Barnes led on the flag back 20 years ago. This is of that magnitude. You didn't look to Roy Barnes originally to say he's the guy that would lead this. You kind of looked to Barnes maybe fighting other fights instead of taking on something that he knew could be very politically risky. And, you know, for regardless of your opinion of Brian Kemp, the guy is keeping his word. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. Um, now, I, I know some of the my colleagues here at the table would, would say that's probably a negative thing, and I understand that they would say that. But it is unusual in this era for politicians to keep their word on major uh, policy issues. That the same that they run on is the same that they govern. That is unusual. Darshan, what's your uh, thought? Uh, Mark was sort of gesturing your way when he said there are people who would take issue with this law. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I agree with him that um, Governor Kemp is keeping on his promise, and he's right. It is unusual to have politicians that keep on, on their promise. Um, but unfortunately, it was a bad promise. It's a promise that I believe is going to kill uh, thousands of Georgia women. Uh, we're in a state where we have the number one, uh, I tell people we're the number one state to do business, but we're also the number one state for women to die in childbirth, particularly women of color. We're three to four times more likely. Um, So I just think it is a campaign promise that unfortunately, unfortunately, he uh, kept and is going to go through litigation. It's going to cost millions of dollars for Georgians. Well, we could be putting that into rural broadband. We could be putting that into expanding Medicaid. I can think of about 20 line item budget items that we can put it into. So, so Darshan, let me just, we know that we've we've talked on this show about maternal mortality Mm -hmm. in this state being a a real issue. We're one of the worst in the country. The worst. I I want to, thank you, but I want to be careful about something here. You say it'll cost thousands of women their lives. Mm -hmm. And that, I think some people are going to hear that and wonder if you're being accurate or a little bit alarmist in trying to characterize how many deaths might result if people can't have have care 
uh, can't have abortions, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of no, care. And I, and, I don't, and I don't think I'm exaggerating it. We heard testimony after testimony from people who had these backgrounds, these medical backgrounds. And we had different organizations that came and said not everybody can carry a baby to full term for health reasons, for any number of reasons. And so I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that, um, particularly in our areas where they, we have half of our counties that don't have OBGYNs. Just think about that. There's two million Georgians and half of them don't have access to uh, medical care. So I don't think that I'm stretching okay. to say that there I, is thousands. I, I just, okay. Yeah. Um, Chuck? I was hoping you'd skip me, Bill. No, you weren't. <laughs> Chuck, I've never known you not to have an opinion, so I, I want to bring you in on this. Um, what's your take on the... Uh, f- first of all, we almost know for certain that a lawsuit will stop the, 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 the this bill going into effect. Without a doubt. It's happened in every other state where they've passed similar laws. Nevertheless... Um, it does seem that this law, whether it actually takes effect or not on January 1st, um, could, in fact, change the attitude that women have about abortion. They may not realize the bill has not gone, it has not been implemented. They may be more frightened about abortions. In other words, it seems to me this bill could have an impact, this law could have an impact, whether it's actually in effect as of January 1st or not. Well, given, given that so many people don't have actual facts at their disposal, they have what's available on Facebook, what they read on Twitter, what they hear from their friends, um, I, I think this bill will certainly stop some of them from having abortion they may have had in the past. Uh, and the actual language of the bill makes it illegal for a, a lot of women who are victims of rape or incest specifically to actually get an abortion unless they made a police report. I mean, how many young girls that are victims of incest or rape are going to call the police? Uh, so it's, uh, it, there's a lot of aspects of this bill that are problematic to the courts, uh, and I just don't see any way that, at least going up to the 11th Circuit, that they can do anything other than set the bill aside and say it's unconstitutional. 11th Circuit, uh, William Boone, is a pretty... I, I'm sorry. I realized having introduced you the way... I can't just say Boone. I just, oh, man, no <laughs> all right. So, William Boone, yeah. um, uh, the 11th Circuit is known to be a very conservative court. Mm-hmm. We don't really know how they will rule on this, do we? No, we don't know, but we can't speculate. I mean, after all... Over the last several months, the ones that have been overturned have been by somewhat conservative courts as well. Well, that's right. That's true. And, uh, and you know, one of the things about federal judges is they're pretty much institutionists, we could call them, in the sense that they are not necessarily going to supersede the U.S. Supreme Court until the Supreme Court gives a signal that, indeed, Roe v. Wade is flawed in some way and they can find their way into that particular flaw. I think the bill would more than likely wind up in, in, in the Supreme Court, along with the Mississippi, Kentucky, Delaware, mm-hmm. the whole whole process. All right. Mark, let's talk about the political implications of this. Yes. I, would, I would assume that it is likely that at least some of the people you will uh, work with on the 2020 cycle legislators will have been people who voted in favor of HB 481. Uh, we will talk. We'll ask Darshan about this in a minute. But we know there's going to be concerted effort by Democrats. They're already beginning it to try to gre- take away those seats, and some of them, especially in suburban Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, could be jeopardized because of women who are uncertain about whether they want to continue voting for the Republican Party. They started drifting away in the 2018 cycle. So, what's the potential damage? Two Republican legislators who voted for this measure. This is something that could go both ways. Uh, in rural areas in particular, you may have Democrats suffering from their vote. Darshan, uh, you particularly mentioned women of color that are, as you described, at risk and not going into that debate at the moment. But there are a number of women of color who actually oppose abortion and may say, you know what, this is what breaks me off from the Democratic Party. This does not represent my values. Now, I have clients that voted for and against this on the Republican side. Uh, Deborah, Representative Deborah Silcox voted against it in a very genuine, emotional uh, way. And um, she has really thought through the issue herself. And then I have other clients that genuinely also voted, but they voted differently than Representative Silcox. They're actually, in Metro Atlanta, I would argue to you, they're, they're 
there are not that many seats left in mm. Metro Atlanta. The Democrats did very well in 2018. There aren't that many seats left to win. Yeah. There may be five um, that are that are out there. Um, and one of those was a close race with Representative Silcox, and she sided on the no side of this vote. So I don't think it's, it becomes an issue there. Um, so, you know, you, you can name a few other districts. I think in the end, though, I think the Democrats will lose a few seats in the rural areas as a result of this. I think that Bob Trammell, the minority leader, is in real jeopardy over this vote. His district is very heavily pro-life, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a Trump election year as well. So I think you could look to very likely that he loses that seat. Um, and and we do these shows in Metro Atlanta. We have the media in Metro Atlanta that do these reviews. And so we don't think about a lot of times, I don't, I don't mean me, because I, I, this actually is something that I spend a lot of time on, but we look at these from a very Metro Atlanta point of view. And there aren't that many seats left that are viable here to go to either party, but there are a lot still in the rural areas. Remember, we're on 18 stations around the state but of Georgia and try very hard to keep those folks in Everybody mind. Everybody at this but table, right. though, lives but within right. 15 miles I, of the coast flies, you know? Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Darshan Malita Easters was on the show the other day. Of course, she is the founder of the Georgia Win List. She says that she's about to announce a whole raft of candidates, <laughs> women, who she believes are going to be able to compete for legislative seats in the 2020 cycle on the basis of the uh, vote. Yeah, she has been able to mobilize so many women uh, across this state who uh, just will no longer take particularly men telling them what to do with their bodies. Um, I, you know, obviously, I don't want to give our, our whole strategy, but we are, we are targeting more than five seats. Um, we have a, a strategy and a plan for that. And, um, you know, particularly if anybody in a rural area is a, is a woman of color and decides to run um, uh, in, in a Democratic district, um, they're probably going to run Republican anyway. So I, I think we are, are hedging our bets that we are going to get people of color who are probably going to run on the Democratic side and support our values, and we're excited about that. I think one of the things that's interesting about this is that um, as if we weren't looking, as if campaigns weren't starting earlier than they ever have before in many election cycles at many levels of public service, this vote virtually guarantees that we're going to start the 2020 races for legislature, uh, maybe for uh, uh, some other, I guess, legislature primarily in terms of of this bill, it's going to start almost immediately. What a tragedy. Without a doubt. (laughs) (laughs) Without a doubt. To to the chagrin of a lot of people I know, look, just too much. But you're absolutely right. I think there, there are forces happening now. I mean, when one looks at this country in terms of the kind of divides we have, and see that there may be a possibility for them to exploit those divides, then they're going to start even earlier uh, in terms of trying to get this going. And I think also we can't uh, overlook the fact that there is a Trump factor here. The folks feel they can uh, run against Trump. Trump has been running, what's it, two years now? So <laughs> he started running, started raising money the day after he was, uh, was inaugurated, right? So, yeah, these elections are beginning earlier because there are issues that now have surfaced They've been there all the time, but they've been surfaced. We have issues ranging from what uh, the the Nazi things in Charlottesville, right? White supremacy, uh, Black Lives Matter. Everybody now wants to put the issue on the table, and they want to do it early. And also, especially in a state like Georgia, what we have, and I think Mark can ascribe to this, what we have is a noticeable demographic shift in a good many a good part of the state, and that and that shift also brings people out earlier in terms of trying to get their issues to these people whom they believe uh, will come come their way. Mark, uh, you're happy for this. You get clients, uh, start billable hours for clients early. But in a, lot, in a lot of ways, is it a good thing that a campaign, these campaigns are getting started fully a year and more ahead of a legislative race? Uh, you know... I, I joked about it a little while ago. It's probably not healthy because it just encourages. You can't go an entire year running against someone and finally not get negative. I think it's going to actually make people get more personally negative against each other. Yeah. And then the the crossfire of social media. I mean, candidates think social media really matters a lot, and it really doesn't. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. But when you're in the thick of it, it seems like it really does. And so I do think that it's probably going to lead to a lot more negativity. Chuck, you're nodding when you hear Mark talk about negativity in campaigns. My wife made me stop putting political posts on Facebook, so I know from my own personal experience that you can't can't do that. I just thought you were becoming a Republican. I think he is a Republican. Uh, uh, You know, what is interesting is, I mean, I get lots of emails from all these candidates that are now running. They're running now, and it's... uh, it's not a lot of positive stuff. It's all negative stuff. And it, it cannot be good for America. Um, if, we, if we see re- America as Reagan did, a, a shining city on a hill, you, you can't have a shining city if you keep cutting the power lines underneath with all this negativity. That's exactly what's happening. Um, you know, eventually, I think America will come to its senses and we'll start talking policy again and ways to move the country together uh, uh, in a positive direction. But for now, I think we've got some hard times ahead of us politically. Um, I want to read, we're going to get to a break, but uh, we're starting to get reactions, and we have for a couple hours now, from various uh, political uh, candidates for political office in Georgia. One of the first to come in was Teresa Tomlinson, who we all know is now a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate. She said, and this is her quote, they have declared pregnant women to be vessels of the state and decreed that the men who control the Georgia state legislature and the governor's office have a compelling state interest in our wombs. We now know without any doubt that all their talk of small government and personal freedom applies only to them, not to us. Darshan, one of the things that's interesting to me about the picture that we saw out of the governor's office this morning when he did this signing is it was a stark and I suspect intentional contrast to a photograph that went viral. And you're nodding already. We, we, mm-hmm. We've talked about it on the show. Uh, there was a pic- photograph taken of the senators mm-hmm. who were supportive of HB 481. Uh, Renee Unterman stood in the front because she was handling the bill in the Senate. But every person behind her was a white man. And that got a lot of attention. And today, if you were to contrast it, and we, maybe we should show a contrast, if we can put the two pictures up. There were women, there were African Americans. They understood they needed to show a different face to this measure today. Yeah, yeah, I mean, optics matter, whether you, um, at the end of the day, you, you want them to or not. Perception is always reality in, in politics. Um, but, but listen, this is an issue that I think you can always find somebody um, on, uh, of a different race or in a, in a different setting that's going to agree or disagree with it. I'm just, I'm just glad that they recognize that optics do matter. It doesn't make the bill any better, but how but careful glad. do you have to be about this in your district? Is your district um, uh, firmly democratic? Oh, it's like seventy-five percent. All right, so you're you really, in a way, can vote your you could and did vote your conscience on this without having to think about the political repercussions. No, I mean I have to think about people being super mean to me on Facebook, um, calling me all types of names. Oh, really? But, well, welcome to the club. Right, right. So, <laughs> here's a real question. I am curious. When people were doing that, did you find authentic question here? Did you find some Democrats that were upset with your vote, or were there ze- literally zero? I am just curious. Literally zero. Right. Okay. Um, all right. They, they might have been, but they never told me. Maybe right. I should clarify that. Yeah. All right. Let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. I understand Facebook is alive with comments today. Facebook live. Um, I'm going to see if we can pull some of those for a little bit later in the show. Uh, but let's take our first break, and we'll be back with more on Political Rewind in a moment. Hi, I'm Burt Wesley Huffman, Senior Vice President and Chief Development Officer at GPB. We've been hearing from listeners across the state of Georgia and beyond during GPB's Stealth Drive, thanking us for this less intrusive fundraising approach that you've been hearing about. We hoped you'd appreciate getting all the programming with less fundraising so much that you'd support GPB in the same way you would during a traditional drive. Well, here's where we are. We've passed the halfway mark for the length of the drive. However, we've not yet reached the halfway mark in terms of the funding that keeps the programs you enjoy on GPB on the air. We're making progress, but we still have a long way to go. If we haven't heard from you yet, now is the time. Join in the effort to keep GPB strong and keep traditional on-air fundraising to a minimum. Donate at gpb.org or 800-222-4788. That's gpb.org or 800-222-4788. And if we've already heard from you, thank you. 
Welcome back uh, to Political Rewind. I want to take just a moment uh, before we move on uh, to follow up on a story that we talked about yesterday. We we talked yesterday about Carolyn Meadows, the uh, longtime veteran Republican uh, operative leader who uh, is now the president of the National Rifle Association, which we pointed out yesterday is largely a ceremonial role. And we, we pointed out that you know, she lives in the 6th District, and she said when she was named president that one of her top priorities was going to be to get rid of Lucy McBath, the Democratic congresswoman in the 6th District. Carolyn made the comment that Lucy McBeth did not get elected because of her stand on guns. She got elected because she's an African-American woman. And we talked a little about that and what we thought about that, what the panel thought about that. Um, And now Carolyn Meadows has apologized. She has now said that it was a mistake to characterize it that way. Here's a direct quote. I apologize to Representative McBath and her supporters. My comments were insensitive and inappropriate. I did not intend to discredit the congresswoman or the merits of her campaign, only to reflect my view that the Second Amendment was not a prevailing factor in this election. It's the kind of thing we expect from those of us who've known Carolyn Meadows forever know that she has always been a woman with, uh, uh, I think, a lot of dignity, a woman who's got, who exhibits real uh, statesmanship when she gets down, when push comes to shove. But boy, Mark, it really makes the point that the second, ground zero nationally for the Second Amendment fight in the 2020 cycle is going to be the 6th District of Georgia. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the Democrats were saying this still in 2018 and 16 and 14. Um, I, I, it's just not the issue that's going to bring them a majority. And it really was not a uh, factor in the in the Democrats taking over the U.S. House. It was really much more of a sort of a retaliation against Trump by a lot of swing voters in the 2018 election. Uh, I just wanted to follow up on that. Did you want to weigh in? Well, yeah, I think that may be a bit narrow <laughs> in terms mm-hmm. of the scope of that. I think the Democrats put on a fairly good fight, especially in health care, which they're going to push again in terms of the, uh, general, the presidential election. Health care, these are the kind of issues that are out there. So I don't think it was just Trump, because I, understand, you, 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 I think we all understand that just running against Trump across the country is not going to win you an election. I was more referring to, um, I'm not disagreeing with you, mm. I was more referring to the, uh, the idea that guns were a major factor oh, in the right. vote well, of the 2018 election. I think the Democrats actually kind of played that down. McBath did not. She did not. She never no, no. did. I live in that district, and I, she, right. she stood by the issue. Too, and, uh, you know, I, I would tell you, I think it played an important role because that's where she, all her money came from. Right. was from the anti-gun folks, from the Bloomberg folks. That's why she won that primary. That's why she won that race, because mm-hmm. she had a lot of money coming in from folks. Yeah, she did. But what we forget in this part of the conversation is that uh, that when that race was coming to an end, and it looked like Macbeth might win it, most observers said, yes, she talked about uh, the Second Amendment, but what really mattered was she emphasized health care mm-hmm. throughout her campaign. Mm-hmm. And and you're uh, nodding at that, Darshan, and uh, pre-existing conditions. In some ways, she moved that to the forefront, and that may have had a bigger impact than Second Amendment, right? Yeah, and I I think I read recently she started a caucus specifically focused on um, uh, maternal uh, death rates. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, being from Georgia, that's got to resonate with a whole bunch of uh, veteran women. All right, um, let's move on. Uh, Chuck Cook, we're really delighted to have you here. By coincidence... Just... Suddenly. In ter- we said <laughs> when we invited you, we wanted to talk about where various issues in terms of immigration, both in Georgia and across country, stand today. And by coincidence, we learned this morning that David Perdue and a small handful of other Republican senators were going to be at the White House sometime today. And Jared Kushner, uh, who has been asked by the president to come up with some sort of immigration plan the administration can push forward. We're going to be briefed on that plan. You seem to have some ideas about what is in that plan. Yeah, we've talked to several people that are kind of involved in the process. Uh, The plan itself comes out of the brain of of Stephen Miller, who's the president's brain on immigration. And if you'll notice the the list of senators who was invited to the White House, uh, every single one of them were either sponsors of uh, Purdue cotton bill, 
only which is only three sponsors, or have historically been pretty nativist on on immigration issues, uh, like Grassley and Mike Lee and 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 Crapo from uh, from Idaho. They have no input from any of the more moderate centers. It's interestingly enough, they invited Lindsey Graham, uh, who is the actual chair of the Judiciary Committee, who will hear this bill, and uh, he's not going because uh, he's been historically very pro-immigration and very pro uh, a, a, a way to take care of a lot of the problems in our system. Uh, the bill itself, as we understand the proposal, will eliminate large portions of family-based immigration. Um, since 1965, our immigration system has been very heavily family, uh, almost 80% focused on family and 20% focused on employment or investment. Uh, this bill will eliminate more than half of those family-based visas, including visas for brothers and sisters, uh, the ability of, of an immigrant to bring their parents when they become a citizen themselves, the ability of adults to bring adult children. Those will all just be eliminated from the law. And those visas will be assigned to an employment kind of merit system uh, that uh, mirrors kind of what Canada did for, for a couple of decades before they threw it out because it wasn't really working effectively for them. Um, if, uh, if the bill itself takes on the approach that the Cotton-Purdue uh, bill takes, basically you have to be a single 28-year-old male with no children uh, with a Ph.D. or a master's degree to immigrate to the United States. That's the Purdue-Cotton bill. <clears throat> uh, so it would effectively cut in half our legal immigration Although perceptually it looked like it won't. All right, but the Purdue Cotton Bill, which has now been around for virtually two years, which the White House supported, which President Trump got behind, has gotten nowhere in the United States Senate. Not a single co-sponsor. Right. So why do we? Why would we think that suddenly this bill is going to resonate and move somewhere? It's not. I mean, that's the thing. They may actually have a hearing in the subcommittee um, of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. It will never see the light of day in the House. Now. What you could do is the Senate, if they decided to move forward on something like this, I wouldn't be surprised if the House moved forward on their version the of an immigration bill. The Democratic-controlled House. And then it becomes up to, you know, eight congressmen and senators in a, in a conference committee to come out with something. Uh, it's just not an issue that's going to pass in an election year. And we are, as we noted earlier, we're already in the election year. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's actually part of an effort of the Trump administration to create more uh, uh, angst on immigration. Uh, to kind of play the Democrats, they won't they won't come to the table. They won't help us fix the problem, uh, and to use the whole anti-immigration sentiment that propelled Trump with a lot of voters in 2016. All right, Dr. Boone, I think that we need to look at this. I'd like to take a more balanced approach. I mean, I get that President Trump has been using immigration and the border as an issue to rally his uh, base ever since he came down that escalator at Trump Tower. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, no administration, Republican or Democrat, George W. Bush tried it in during his second term in office to get a comprehensive immigration reform bill. And no bill, whether it's liberal in terms of how many people can come into the country, whether it's liberal in terms of giving a path to legalization of an immigrant, nothing can get passed these days. Yeah, yeah issues become so emotionally fraught. It really has. I mean, one can always go, go back to LBJ, quite frankly, in terms of talking about immigration and how you deal with this question. And it's been, it's been a question all for a number of years. And it's one that stokes a good many folk. I mean, for instance, even, even in the African-American community, you're going to get some wide diversions in terms of opinions about mm-hmm. immigration. So it's one that cuts deep. Uh, the narrative, of course, in some quarters, African-American quarters, is that folk who immigrate to this country are taking away African-American jobs. Of course, that really can't be shown statistically, but that certainly is a narrative that goes out there. So the Democrats have to tread very lightly, given that their base is primarily African-American. And, and of course, you also have a competing interest when it comes to Americans who, and agriculture, but Georgia, for example, they need these guest workers, as they're called in other countries, to do the work because you're simply not going to find folk who are going to pick up 80-pound watermelons and cantaloupes. So it, it, it's that kind of issue that goes back and forth, and they can't really come out with a, with a real plan. You get the extremes in terms of no families, you know, and, that, and that's a problem because that is how folk get to this country, Right. And then you get an extreme example, and, and, and the rhetoric that goes al- along with this is rhetoric that does not illuminate anything. 
I mean, you're talking about the country's full. That's rhetoric. But at the same hand, you're talking about the country needs more younger people to work in certain kind of jobs. So that's why you're getting this kind of back and forth. You know, Mark, uh, we all, we mostly, most of us at the table remember when uh, Saxby Chambliss and Johnny Isaacson were part of a bipartisan coalition back in 2006 and 2007. Uh, Edward Kennedy had an immigration reform bill. It would not provide a path to citizenship, but it would allow, I think I'm right, it would uh, 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 give undocumented immigrants uh, a right to stay here legally. Uh, it would expand, I think, the guest worker program, if I got that, that right so yep. far, Chuck. Um, and here's the reason I point this out. We, we've talked about this on the show before. I'm going to play a soundbite and then talk about the consequences of this comment. Uh, Edward Kennedy held a news conference with his bipartisan partners on this bill in, in 2007 uh, it, it, on the Hill. And um, one of the people who spoke at that uh, news conference was Georgia Senator at the time, Saxby Chambliss. In my uh, now going on 13 years in the United States Congress, I've never seen a more emotional, more sensitive, or more politically charged issue than the issue of immigration reform. You know, when I came to the United States Senate, I wanted to try to have the opportunity to make good laws. And the way you make good laws is to have both people on both sides of the aisle come together in a bill that none of us would think would be perfect, but a bill that is perfect for the American people. I have never seen a more committed group than this group to making sure that something was done. And the reason everybody has been so committed is because it's not in the interest of Republicans or Democrats. It is in the interest of the American people. Mark Roundtree, several yeah. months later, the state Republican convention, Saxby Chambliss, was given a spot on the agenda to speak. What happened? I was at that convention, yeah. and it was overwhelming booing. Um, it, it, people and the Republicans and the conservatives in that area, I believe that was May of 2008 or seven. But anyway, seven. Um, but the... Uh, the wind, the bit, sort of the air, went out of the balloon for conservatives behind Saxby Shambles at that point because, for him, I think that it, it was bigger than immigration. It wasn't only that. It was people were tired of capitulation to liberal Democrats, where government got bigger, taxes got higher, spending got more, debt got bigger, and it was always in that direction. And it really was not until the Tea Party formulated three years later where really there was a line in the sand to that. It wasn't. The, McCain people, it wasn't the Romney people, and it wasn't the Bush people. And really, it was the grassroots that were, that was sort of the lightning rod that drew the line. Nonetheless, uh, I hear you, there, were, there was more that Chambliss was yeah. being held accountable for. And that was the issue in that convention. It, it certainly scared the heck out of any other Republican his who would want to work on an immigration yeah. his bill. His face was shocked. Yeah. I mean, they had him up on the wall, and he, he was wide-eyed with shock at the people that were booing. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay, let's talk about this. Uh, mm. We have all sorts of things we can talk about, but let's bring it back home just for a minute, Darshan, because um, you're, uh, you represent a portion of Gwinnett County. As you know, uh, Sheriff Butch Conway uh, has just announced that he has every intention of renewing the county's uh, agreement with ICE, that uh, he will continue to uh, arrest and turn over uh, people who he believes are undocumented uh, uh, residents who ICE is going to want to take into custody themselves. So there's that. He's been doing it for 10 years. He wants to renew it. But but I want to... Here's a quote that, um, that he made, and, and I want to ask you what you think about that. He said... Well, I'm not, I don't have the exact quote. But he said that, that uh, in the they, they've arrested more than 52,000 people uh, who he had doubts about their uh, uh, immigration status. 15,000 of those they've questioned have been handled, handed over to federal immigration authorities. And then he said, these are murder, rape. Some of these are people who might be uh, murderers, rapists, molesters. And he thinks that his, this program has helped reduce the numbers of murders, rapes, child molestations in the county. What do you make of that kind of statement? 
Well, he really sounds like he's taking a line out of uh, the Minority president. Report. Yeah, yeah, the, the <laughs> president Trump when he first uh, uh, started talking about murderers and, and people rapists, from yeah. and rapists and stuff. But I guess some of them are good people. You know, he's he got to follow up with that. But um, you know, if if Butch has not um, sort of went outside his front door in Gwinnett County, man, he is missing it. Gwinnett is changing and, and not going to stand with that. We have the, one of the most diverse counties um, in the uh, in the south. These actually, so um, for him to uh, to sort of make that that statement, um, not backing it up with any facts, but just sort of saying, I I think that I have uh, saved people from yeah. murders and all these things. It's a little. It, it's, it's interesting. He's up for re-election in 2020, but we don't know for sure whether he is going to seek uh, re-election. To the best of my knowledge, and we now have a couple of Democrats who've decided they want to get yeah. into the race. Both of whom are opposed to 287G. I mean, basically 287G. The the number of people he talks about arresting, the vast majority were arrested on traffic traffic. Mm-hmm. Okay, vast majority. So basically, he's separated about 50,000 families. All right, Chuck, if, 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 if I'm in the country illegally um, and I'm arrested for a traffic violation, why shouldn't the law enforcement agency turn me over to ICE, given that I've broken the law by being in the country illegally? The Gwinnett County Sheriff is not charged with enforcing federal immigration laws. He doesn't. Uh, that is the responsibility of the federal government. But he doesn't. Uh, he I know he does. Holds I know he does, and he costs. The ICE the, it costs the county of Gwinnett three to four million dollars a year to do that. That is not reimbursed by the federal government. Now, obviously, he's made the choice to do that. I lived in Gwinnett for ten years when I moved. It's here. been t- it's been fifteen million dollars over ten years, not three or four million a year. One and a half million dollars a year. Okay. Okay. Just so be accurate with the numbers. That's, that's okay, but, but I'm asking. But but, but more than that, what what it, what it has done, and it's odd. You would think that people would be a, if you were an immigrant you would be then afraid to live in Gwinnett County. But the exact opposite of that has happened. Gwinnett County has grown and continues to attract immigrants, both documented and undocumented there. But what it also has has attracted is this belief that people have been targeted because of their race. Whether that's factually true or not is not relevant because as Darshan put it earlier, it's perception that matters. these two Democrats that are run, that announced to run against him, they're both going to oppose 287G. Uh, the county ultimately has to authorize uh, the, the, the contract if he goes ahead and signs it. Um, would interestingly note, over in Cobb, they also have 287G. Yeah, Neil Warren. So effect, uh, it, it, except they have enforced it very differently in Cobb County. Uh, they no longer detain people for traffic violations. Uh, they will take, if you're arrested for an actual crime, they'll detain you. ICE will pick you up. Uh, but it, what has happened, it's reduced the number of people turned over in Cobb and compared to Gwinnett. And Gwinnett is actually the number one county in the entire United States on turning people over to ICE. I, I got to get to a break, but I do want to point out that uh, State Senator Nakima Williams, now the chair of the uh, state Democratic Party, is listening to the show. Her comment in answer to my question about why shouldn't these people be turned over since they've broken the law, she says this is a gateway to uh, racial profiling in Gwinnett County. That's that's the way that she uh, sees this issue. Um, and we appreciate uh, the fact that uh, you're listening out there, Senator Williams. Let's do a break. We're running short on time. Too much to talk about. We'll be back in a moment. <laughs> We're more than halfway through GPB's Stealth Drive but we've not yet reached the halfway mark for the support it takes to sustain the programs you enjoy. Consider the role GPB plays in your life and what the service we provide means to you. For just $10 or $15 a month, you can support the programs that matter to you and help keep on-air fundraising to a minimum. Donate at gpb.org or 800-222-4788. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air, we talk with journalist Rachel Louise Snyder, author of a new book about domestic violence, and Suzanne Debuse, who runs a crisis center for victims of domestic violence, including a program designed to identify when a woman is at risk of being murdered and then helping prevent that from happening. Debuse was abused in her first marriage. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. All right, we're back. Just a few minutes left. Chuck, let me go back on this immigration, uh, on the immigration stories that we've been following. We're going to kind of have to move through these a little more quickly. Um, 
Separating families. The courts have told uh, the administration, Homeland Security, they have to stop separating uh, families, as had happened uh, for, for some time. And now we're learning that, in fact, to some extent, I don't know how much, but there is family separation. Children are being separated from their parents. The, the court allowed the, cust- the folks at Customs and Border Protection, CBP, the Border Patrol, to continue to separate children from family if, one, they thought the child's life was in danger or if they, they, were led, they had a sufficient evidence to believe that it really wasn't the family. Um, and uh, there's been at least 100 children in the last month or so that have been separated from their parents uh, or from whoever they came into the border with. Uh, it, it's unclear about how many total that has been since the order was put into place by the federal court judge last June, uh, but it clearly appears to be a significant number. Uh, the question is, the interesting part is neither the HHS nor ICE, who control the separation after CBP does it, will tell, will tell the Congress how many kids are separated. Mark, one of you, the pollster in the room, one of the things that I found interesting was recent polling, Washington Post, ABC News, I believe, mm-hmm. that shows that, and it's Republicans dominate in this polling uh, of data, but an increasing number of Americans are seeing the situation at the border as either being very serious or, in fact, a crisis. Again, Republicans in much larger numbers than Democrats, but there does seem to be a growing sense that there are significant problems there that could, in the long run, I suppose, accrue to President Trump's benefit. You know, you could look at different polls that'll say different things. One that you had sent us, uh, just as a sort of heads up, identified essentially 80% of the people saying it was a significant issue. Call it what you will. Now, some people may also be more on the, you know pro-immigration side saying it's an it's it's a significant issue too right but you might see it, it as a crisis that could be resolved by increasing it, it immigration and allowing people into the country it, it is an elevated issue with with swing voters it is uh there are not that many issues that affect swing voters swing voters are often affected by things like character um you know it, attacks on truth things like that but this is an issue that does resonate with swing voters life pro-life pro-choice those are more along the lines of partisan votes at this point. A lot of the pro-choice people are just simply Democrat. A lot of the pro-life are pro, uh, Democrat, Republican. But immigration has not broken out that way. And with states like Pennsylvania, um, which has a, has a you know strong blue-collar uh, labor market, Wisconsin, Michigan, these are states that actually this issue plays fairly well for states the president. States that, Dr. Boone, that the president would like to get back into his um, electoral map in 2020, and it's not certain whether he'll be able to do that. No, you know, actually, anything that happens on immigration from the Republican side, the Trump in particular side, is geared towards 2020. And, he's, and he thinks he can revive that particular song again and, and move forward with that. Uh, but I think when one looks at those polls, I think certainly... I think most folks would agree that at this point, there is a crisis on the border. The question becomes whether or not who created the crisis and how the crisis is going to be relieved. Fast. All right. Darshan, last word. we got about 20 seconds. You got something you want to add to this? Uh, no, just that, again, Gwinnett County is changing. So I think that uh, anybody who's in Gwinnett County running for office really needs to, you know, mind their manners. Thank you. This. I just wanted everybody to hear your voice one oh, okay. last time. Fair enough. We're completely, I don't know where the time went on this show. I swear I thought we had another 40 minutes to talk. <laughs> we don't. We have about 25 seconds. Darsha and Kendricks, thank you. Dr. William thank Boone, you. real pleasure. Will you come back? Yeah, if you ask me. I will ask you. <laughs> and, and give a glass of water. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. Mark Roundtree, thank you for. For, uh, being here. I look forward to uh, seeing you throughout the cycle as you uh, uh, are have people out there that you're working for. So uh, we enjoyed having you. And Chuck Thank Cook, you. always a pleasure always to have you with us. Thank you all out there for being with us. Uh, join us again tomorrow at 2 for another Political Rewind.